This is a Discovery Church podcast. Tune in to hear from our team as we invite you to find yourself in the bigger story. To find out more about what's going on in the life of the church, head to discoverychurch.com.au. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Welcome to those of you joining us online as well. Seven weeks in the book of Revelation. The title of today's message is How to Avoid a Goose Chase. A lot of us feel like Revelation is just a, it's a wild goose chase, right? We're chasing our tail. We don't know where we're going. But today is going to set up a framework, kind of for like the borders of a property or the boundaries of our landscape as we engage with this incredible, inspiring, beautiful, and encouraging book that we find is the 66th book in our Bibles. I'm really looking forward to going into that together. How to avoid a goose chase. We're going to start in Revelation chapter 5, and I want to read this passage to us almost as a way of introducing us to some of the themes, some of the big ideas, some of the imagery that we find in this passage of Scripture. All right, Revelation chapter 5, starting at verse 1, going through to verse 10. Listen to this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written and on the back sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll. And it's seven seals. Everyone getting this? Everyone following along? Oh, yeah, everyone's going, yeah, totally. I know exactly where we're up to. The, the, and between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the, all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. When he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, and the, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. Amen. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you used your imagination? When was the last time you used your imagination? As kids, we love using our imagination. Imaginative play is, is, a, is a formational part of being a child. Imaginative play is something that we encourage in children that they grow to use. I mean, as a kid, I used to imagine, you know, we have those conversations with our friends. Imagine if the sky rained chocolate instead of water, right? It's one of our, imagine, guys, if the trees were made of lollies imagination. Imagine if when you, you could stand on the clouds and run around on them like platforms. Imagine 
These things form up who we are. They're a part of beautiful and, and actually healthy human development. I used to think to myself as a child, five, six years old, I thought to myself, I think somewhere, someplace on earth, somebody is writing the best song ever created. And what if nobody heard it because it was written in a forest or in a desert or something? I used to think, there is someone writing a song right now that is so beautiful and maybe we'll never even get to hear it. That was what was something that I imagined could happen. Now you're going, Stairway to Heaven's already been written, mate, so it's already done. Yeah, but I know there is something out there. We use this imagination, but when was it in time that you stopped imagining? You switched it off because you thought it's time to get real. It's time to talk about real stuff and real life and things that are really going on. Well, revelation, my friends, is a gift to you and I in our need for a biblically informed imagination. The book of Revelation doesn't just speak to your cognitive mind. It speaks to our imaginations. It speaks to us and evokes something, draws something out, allows you to dream, allows you to think differently. Imagination deals in the world of possibilities, in the world of what if. That's why imaginative play for kids is so important. What if? Imagine if. That is the world of imagination, and the book of Revelation does exactly that. I want you to listen to these words from Eugene Peterson. He said this, The gospel, the truth of the gospel is already complete. It's revealed in Jesus Christ. He said just before this, in this quote, he says, Everything we need to know that God wanted to reveal to us is found in law and prophet and gospel and epistle. Everything in the 65 books preceding Revelation But he said, I read Revelation um, not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. St. John uses words the way that poets do, recombining them in fresh ways so that old truth is freshly perceived. We're going on a journey, my friends, into a place where we are going to start to evoke and form in us a biblically formed, a biblically informed imagination where we start to deal with the world of what if, of what could be, of what is and what we do not see. Now, this is something that God gives to us as a gift, a new way of seeing the world. We're familiar with that phrase in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Part of the renewing of our mind happens in this way. But we need to say this up front. If you've been in or part of a church for five minutes, five years, or 50 years, you might understand that the book of Revelation is one of the most widely read books, but one of the least understood books. In the Bible. And we bring to Scripture every time we read it a whole host of presuppositions. We bring to Scripture every time we read it our background, our history, our past, what we've learned, the way that we are. We bring all of that to the reading of Scripture and we impose our own views on it as we read it. Do you know that you do that? 
our worldview, 21st century um, Victoria, we bring to the Word of God and we then place our presuppositions on top of it. And so the first thing we've got to do is kind of peel some of that back. Now, in kind of Christian culture, if you like, I don't love that word and I don't, so I've put it in inverted commas here, but in Christian culture, we've kind of had this real rise and in interest in the end times, particularly because of a guy called Hal Lindsey in the 70s. Hal Lindsey was a guy who wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, and now I know some of you guys have read it, and it was what formed up and started to revive this conversation in the church about, quote-unquote, the end times. There should be a slide for this. Next slide along. Hal Lindsey in the 70s did that. We also have the Left Behind series. Now, how many of you read the Left Behind series? That was a series all about, you know, there's, there's been the rapture has happened and God's taken people and then there are people who are left behind to kind of live in this thousand years of tribulation, of war and terror and all of this kind of stuff. You may have had debates with your friends about when the millennium was happened, those thousand years. Are you pre-millennial, post-millennial, pan-millennial? Pan, it'll all pan out in the end. We had all of that kind of stuff, those kind of debates are all in the mix. And then you have guest speakers who come and they tell you their theory. Guys, guys, you've heard a lot of things, but I'm going to tell you today. I'm going to give you the timeline, and it comes complete with, um, with a slideshow or maybe overhead projectors, overhead projector notes, you know, and a laser pointer. And so we can see exactly in history where we are on the journey. And of course, guest speakers are awesome because they get to come and then drop a bomb in a community and just leave. And the poor pastor team is sitting there going, oh my gosh, what do we do now? You know, so this is all part of what we bring to it. And it's just important to mention it so that we understand what we're bringing to Scripture when we read it. In wider culture, we have the same thing. Right now, when anybody who outside the church wants to get under this kind of skin of a religious person, they start talking about 666, right? Because there's this thing in our heads about 666. Oh, we get kind of really upset or, oh, it's the devil's number, that kind of thing. Or the mark of the beast. You know, we've heard that more than once or twice over the last couple of years. This idea that there is something, there is a mark that's going to, um, that's going to determine, you know, you've been, you've been kind of condemned or you've been separated from the people of God. You've been marked in a way that you've been forever changed. The ideas that we have in movies about dragons and armies, you might think of, you know, those CGI images in movies of just one army running down a mountain, the other army running down the other mountain, and that cacophony of spears and, and shields as they all clash together in the middle. All of these images are evoked. They come out of these passages that we're going to read in the book of Revelation. These images of dragons, this kind of monsters that are hiding around the corner or monsters that are there to devour children, you know, these are all their big, big images in the book of Revelation. No wonder we can get a little bit kind of, you know, freaked out, a little bit worried. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, you know, one's riding death, another's riding, all of these kinds of things are all part of wider culture. I mean, when you think about the passage that we just read, Revelation chapter 5, we read 10 verses, 1 to verse 10. 
And now look at all the stuff that we found in that passage. We'll get, get that slide up as well. Scrolls, angels, living creatures, a lamb looking nose that's been killed, seven horns, seven eyes, 24 elders, harps, bowls, singing, all of these things. Now what do we do with them? Because far too often we consign it to too hard basket, don't understand, going to push it over to the side, uh, don't worry about it, let's go back to what's real, let's go back to real life, rather than allowing this, these images and these ideas in the right context to form a biblically formed sense of imagination about what could be, about what is, about what God's doing with the whole program. Are we okay so far? All right. Some of you are going to have to come back to today as we go through the following weeks, and that's going to be cool too. So understood that we're doing it that way. So what is Revelation all about, and how do we understand it? Um, we were 18, and Jody was the following day about to start her um, VCE, her VCE exams. It was called HSC back then. She was about to start, and the night before we went away, oh, sorry, the night before she started her exams, we went um, on a four-wheel drive trip just for the day into some sand dunes. Jody, myself, we were we were just dating at the time, and some two friends of ours, uh, my mate and his girlfriend as well. And we went into the sand dunes on a four-wheel drive trip, and we, you know, spent the afternoon on, you know, cardboard boxes going down sand dunes and all that kind of stuff at night. We cooked up sausages on a pan. We made a little fire in the sand dunes and and had dinner. And then we got got late. It's like nine o'clock. Everything's, you know, and in the sand dunes, it's dark and it's cold. And we couldn't find the keys to the car. Lost, lost, lost. We looked everywhere, retraced, like, like needle in a haystack is like, that's a, that's a polite way of saying it. Like keys in a sand dunes, like this was a nightmare. We looked everywhere, retraced all of our steps, thinking maybe they came out when we were going down the sand dunes, all of that kind of stuff. Anyway, we got back to the car and we thought we have to get out of there. Now, don't ask too many questions about my friend's history or about why I was friends with him, but he knew how to hotwire his own car. (laughs) So that's what he did, and I was kind of impressed that he knew how to do that. He hotwired his own car, but the thing is the steering lock was on, so we had to, the four of us, grab hold of the steering wheel and break the steering lock off his car. And so then the steering wheel went all floppy, and anyway, we managed to get our way out, I was very worried about dropping Jody home the night before her HSC exams at midnight, and Jody's mother was not impressed. <laughs> and of course, then we got back to my friend's house and found his keys under the seat. <laughs> Oftentimes, the things that we're looking for and we look so far away are right close, right under our noses. When it comes to the book of Revelation, the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. We can get distracted by a lot of other bits and bobs, but we keep the main thing the main thing, and the plain things are the main things. 
Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. This is going to be our text for the day. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what's in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne. The first thing that we can understand about the book of Revelation is that it's a letter. It is a letter. A letter that was written by John, who was a, um, a religious captive, if you like, a, somebody who had been uh, persecuted, who had been sent away to a rocky jail-type outcrop of an island called Patmos, which was off the coast of Turkey in about 80, uh, 96 AD. Got that location in history? So 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, around about that time, Paul, uh, the, the Apostle John has been sent to this island, and he is away from the seven churches which he pastors, and he is writing to them from Patmos. It's a letter. Why is he writing to them? Well, in this culture at this time, there was an emperor over Rome and an, all, over all of the country, all of the territory that Rome, uh, that Rome ruled. His name was Domitian, and he was more severe than all of the other emperors that had come before him. Domitian was the ruler who said, who commanded his name to, he, he needed to be called our Lord and God, Domitian. He claimed divinity, he wasn't just a ruler, wasn't just a good guy, wasn't just the elected leader. He was God. And he's told all of Rome, this is what you've got to call me. His name was inscribed on coins. His image was inscribed on coins. Our Lord and God, Domitian. And the persecution against Christians was starting to ramp up. And so the Apostle John was sent away to Patmos to separate him, to exile him from the churches that he led. These seven churches are the churches that he writes to in the book of Revelation because Revelation is a... It's written above me, a letter. It's a letter written to seven churches by John in, under the persecution of Domitian in in Rome in 96 AD. Why does he write to them? There's a number of reasons why he writes, and there's a number of reasons of things that he says. The first thing is that he's encouraging the church. He's encouraging them. The persecution of the time is starting to ramp up, and so he writes to the church in those seven places in order to encourage them to stay strong, to, to hang on, to have faith, to continue on in, in, in love, in loving one another and serving their world. He was encouraging them and writing them to address issues and correct problems. You don't have to go far to get that. You go into Revelation 2, Revelation 3, and he's addressing problems, correcting issues, writing into what's going on in those real-world churches, seven real-world churches in, 80, in 96 
AD. A lot of those sites, if you, if, um, some of you may have done this, you've traveled through Turkey, and you can go to the sites of some of these churches that he writes to. He's writing to them to inspire deeper discipleship and loving, humble witness even to the point of death. Because he knows under Domitian, Domitian's a horrible guy, a megalomaniac ruler, and if anyone else is going to say that anyone else is God, for, you know, if any, Jesus is Lord, oh my gosh, we can't say Jesus is Lord. The only Lord around here is Domitian. There's only room for one of us. So he's writing to encourage the Christians to persevere, to push through, and some of them would even lose their lives. So this becomes part of the fabric of the letter. Now, beware, my friends, just a word on Nostradamus syndrome. You remember Nostradamus? He's the guy who predicted the end of the world. The Revelation was written in 96 AD to seven churches in that region. And there is sometimes a temptation for some of us when we're interpreting Revelation to use it as a way, as a code to be cracked, to predict the future. Just beware of that. Because it's been done time and 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 time again through church history. And it's not yet been right once. That's all I'm going to say about that. Nextly. You've got to know when to hold them and when to fold them. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> it's a letter. It's also a prophecy. He says that blessed is he who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Now, when we think about prophecy, you think about somebody again. You think, well, that's like telling the future, right? No, it's not about telling the future. Prophecy was much less about telling the future and much more about saying stuff that God was saying to people right now. So when you think about prophecy in the, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> a lot of times God is addressing what is happening in the culture of the day. Now, Revelation is steeped in the language of the Old Testament. One of the things that's assumed when somebody's reading Revelation is that you have picked up um, the idea that this is, there are uh, um, images, pictures, ideas that come to us out of the Old Testament. 500, in fact, allusions or direct quotations from Scripture in the book of Revelation alone. That's a lot, right? That's a lot of illusions. That's a lot of quotes. That's a lot of information that has been gathered across the entire council of Scripture that's been now placed into Revelation in order to allow us to see what might not be seen. It's a prophecy because it's in line with the prophetic tradition of announcing God's justice to the poor, needy, and the marginalized. That is good news for every single person. And you can imagine in 96 AD, if you were a Christian at that time, you were poor, you were needy, and you were marginalized. And so this is a word of hope and a word of encouragement to those people. It's in line with that great prophetic tradition. So we need to be careful that we don't use Revelation to... Um, justify our own special child syndrome. This book is just about me and the group who believes like me. This is just about um, me and me creating a siege mentality around my life and me building an entire world around us and them. Because this was to all Christians, 
This was to all people who were needy, marginalized, and broken, and under the power, and, uh, under the power of the culture of the day. We've got to be careful about how we do that as well. It's not about elevating a special race or one nation or creating separatist political movements or even religious movements, which is it's, all of that's happened. But this is about standing in that great prophetic tradition and speaking to the poor and saying, God's got you. There is hope. There is life ahead. So if it's a letter and it's a prophecy, it's also a revelation or what we would call an apocalypse. Now, this is hard because, again, we've, we love the word apocalypse. I love zombie apocalypse movies. I think they're, you know, they're fun. They're a great way of being able to build in a whole lot of violence into a movie without it feeling so bad, right? Because they're dead anyway. You know, that kind of thing. Well, that's how it works, right? And so it's a revelation. It's an apocalypse, which literally means the word apocalypse in Greek means unveiling, uncovering. It's like God pulling back the curtain to something that is happening at the time. Apocalyptic literature was a genre of the day, much like, um, much like science fiction is right now. So if you're going to a science fiction movie, you've already got in your head what kind of movie I'm going to experience. It's going to be aliens. It's going to be time travel. It's going to be kind of weird stuff going on. It's going to be spaceships, people in suits. All of these kinds of things we bring to it because we know the genre that we're watching. Does that make sense? In the same way, apocalyptic literature was common in Bible times. And so this kind of literature, although it has, a lot of it hasn't survived to get to us now, was very common. And so whilst we read Revelation 5 and go, angels, bowls, elders, wings, crowns, all of this, it would have been very understandable and not too hard to understand for somebody reading it the day. Otherwise, how do we get it? If it made no sense to the original hearers, why did they pass it on? So it's a letter, it's a prophecy, and it's an apocalypse, a revelation, an unveiling of something that's going on behind the scenes. So we've got to be careful, guys, of the fear-mongering. I've seen it time and time again. People use revelation to get people super scared because we think that by getting people really scared, they're going to run to Jesus. And I think it's a, it's a wrong way to use this book because it wasn't written to make people afraid. It was written to bring encouragement. It was written to bring hope. It was written to bring life. It was written to people who were suffering under persecution to tell them to hold on just for one more day because God's got this under control. And even though it looks like everything's going bad, God's still going to come through. So we can't use it to foster our own conspiracy theories about stuff that's going on. I mean, conspiracy theories in Scripture aren't new. You can go back to the book of Esther, and you can see one there, where they said all of the Jewish people were going to be killed. It was this conspiracy that was being formed at the time, and it happens time and time and time again. But Revelation's a look behind the curtain at present kingdom realities that have been obscured by a proud and selfish culture. 
See, the thing is, if you're proud and you're selfish, you don't see what's really there. And Revelation pulls back the curtain. It's an apocalypse, an unveiling of what's really going on. And what's really going on is God's in control. The lamb wins. He's on the throne. Angels, all of heaven is worshiping him. He's the only one who can unfold the scrolls of all of history. That's what's really going on. And it's important because we don't see that right now. You don't see that right now. We're all kind of head down, focused on real life, looking at all of these kinds of things that are going on in our world, worrying about where's God, where's God, I can't see. And then what what Revelation does is it peels back the curtain and says, guys, underneath it all, lamb wins. Even the lamb himself looks like as though he's been killed. Give you hope. Future. God's in control. So some good questions for biblical interpretation, then we'll make some um, final applications, and then we'll go. What's the context? How does this inform my imagination? What details get my attention? What references to the Old Testament or to the Roman world do I notice? And what was John's purpose in including it? Some people said, oh, well, John, it's a vision. He just wrote what he saw. But it's very carefully crafted, very well thought out. It's written as a beautiful piece of literature in and of itself. It wasn't kind of stream of consciousness um, Jack Kerouac style, I'm just going to tell you, blah, 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 just like l- let it all out. It was very perfectly uh, and specifically formed. So what was John's purpose? I mean, they're good questions for any text, but particularly as it comes to Revelation, it's important. Okay, so what does this book of Revelation say about who we are? Firstly, it says this, you are a beacon of hope. That's what it says. It says that you are a beacon of hope, that Christians, people who love Jesus, people who have gone on a journey to to disciple themselves to the person of Jesus Christ, they're a beacon of hope in our world. That's what Revelation says. You have hope within you. You are the light of the world. You are the one who is victorious because you are in Christ and he is victorious. So you are a beacon of hope. People can look at you and go, oh, maybe life's going to actually be better, not worse. Maybe God is doing something in history, even though it looks like everything's going backwards. You are a beacon of hope, my friends. It's horrible to me that this book has been used to get people so scared and people so insular when the whole idea was to fill you with courage to fill you with life and with a sense of vitality and a sense of, um, a sense of importance about what it is that we're called to do next. Secondly, you carry a prophetic blessing. You know, this is the one book in Scripture that has a special blessing for those who read it aloud. Isn't that weird? Blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy. And it makes me think, well, what, what is that blessing and why is it there? But it's that great prophetic tradition of you and I carrying hope to the marginalized, the broken, and the hopeless. You carry a prophetic blessing because when the lamb wins, it means that you win, and therefore it means that you can then be generous and give out of that victory to those who don't have. 
We get to carry that prophetic blessing, hope for the marginalized, hope for the lost, hope for the broken, hope for those who are on the outside or on the underside of power. We carry a prophetic blessing. You can carry that. I've toyed around with the idea of maybe doing one night where we actually do read the entire book of Revelation aloud. Blessed are the words who read aloud the words of this prophecy. It'd be kind of like a fun spoken word, like kind of, you know, slam poetry night. <laughs> Wear my sideways cap and, you know, just break it down. My children will die of cringe. Thirdly, you are held in Christ. You're held in Christ. You're a beacon of hope. You're a prophetic blessing and you are held. You are held. He holds you. He holds you. We're going to see this over the, over the coming weeks where Jesus holds his church against hell and high water. Everything comes against it. Jesus holds his church and you are held in Christ. Nothing can shake that. Nothing's going to separate you from his hand. Nothing's going to, an army could come against you and nothing's going to shake that. This is an apocalypse of war and of love. In there, there are armies that come to war, but also there is a wedding feast. There is a great banquet because Jesus is engaged to be married. Guess who he's marrying, my friends? Us. And we can get sides and say, oh, it's all doom and gloom, it's all bad, it's all war. No, right in the middle of the war, there's a wedding feast. God pushes back. Well, armies, you stay over there. Warring angels, you stay over there because I'm about to have dinner with my bride. You're held in Christ. Main things are the plain things. The plain things are the main things. Um, a Bible college lecturer that, of mine, which I, um, I'm indebted to and I, ex- ex- I, I respect extremely, said this. We may describe the book of Revelation as all the action of God were given us on the big screen. John has, as its grand overview of history, and as should be seen from the vantage point of the throne of God. Here, God is seen in all his glory and majesty. Jesus is seen in his victorious splendor. The church is seen as the people of God, secure, fully equipped, even in the midst of the great tribulation. And the enemy is seen as he truly is, vicious, deceptive, and defeated. John's point is that he's seen Jesus. Uh, no, history no longer holds any fear or uncertainty because Jesus is Lord. And that's the great and glorious hope that we hold to. And this is the great and glorious hope of the book of Revelation and what I'm really excited to be able to share with you and to unpack over the next few weeks. So some application questions. Where am I being led to deepen my passion for Jesus? How does this book challenge my current worldview? Where could I use a big dose of hope right now? How might this book be unsettling me out of my middle-class comforts? And who needs my help? We're going to be exploring all of these things. And my, you know, my, my biggest hope of all 
is that we come out of this not arguing over which interpretation is right, but beholding the glory, the beauty, and the majesty of King Jesus, the Lamb who wins, the Lamb who holds everything in his hand and who is bringing history to its ultimate fulfillment, its teleos, its goal in Christ himself. Let's stand together. All right, well, Father, thank you. We're gathered together in your name, Jesus. And some of who we are reflects this passage, what it is that's gone on in the book of Revelation. We want to thank you that whilst the Revelation wasn't written to us, it was written for us. And we have it now as an inheritance, a legacy of the great people of God who've gone before us. We want to thank you, Jesus, that you are bringing history to its fulfillment, to its completion. Jesus, you will return again. And Jesus, that can be a great deal of encouragement to us who follow you today. Father, we want to thank you for the gift of these words to inspire and to enliven and to shape our imagination, to help us to dream again. To pull back the curtain and see indeed that Jesus, you are victorious and the Lamb does win. I pray you'd impact us today and in the weeks that follow as we continue to um, open your word. Holy Spirit, guide and lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us on this Discovery Church podcast. Now go and find yourself in the biggest story.